Would you pray with me uh, before we open God's word? Let's pray. God, now as we come to your holy word, as Matt just prayed, we desire to be people marked by it, changed by it, people who listen attentively to it and respond in adoration and love and worship to what is revealed about you in it. So help us to hear you, God. Speak, Holy Spirit, work, change, mold us into Christ-likeness, and may we go from this place loving you and our neighbor more as a result of your work in us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, we're going to be looking at a lesser-known book, maybe, of the Bible in the group of the Minor Prophets, a book called Hosea, which you can find in page 751 of the Bibles provided in front of you. If you're a child or maybe a visitor or young Christian or maybe an older Christian, you may have noticed that Christians can use funny words sometimes, words that you don't hear just as you talk to your neighbor or your coworker. And sometimes we wonder, what do those words mean? Sometimes we use them, we don't know what they mean. A word we often use here, and hopefully many of us know what it means, is the word covenant. Covenant. What is a covenant? And how would you describe it? A really helpful picture of a covenant that we've probably all interacted with to some degree, young children or older people and everywhere in between, A great picture of a covenant is marriage. may actually be the best way, humanly speaking, to illustrate what a covenant is. A man and a woman making a vow of a commitment of loyal, unending love to one another. A husband and a wife demonstrating the sincerity and gravity of what they're doing by marrying in the presence of others and in the sight of God. Marriage is a covenant. And it also powerfully illustrates a major theme of the Bible. That God, the creator, makes a covenant with people that he made. So it's not surprising then that God chooses marriage as the main image of an entire book of the Bible called Hosea. In this book... God portrays himself as the husband, joined in the covenant, married to his chosen nation, Israel. But it is far from a blissful marriage. In fact, it's the opposite. As we'll find, the marriage is in ruins, and it's because Israel has been unfaithful, cheating on God. With other gods. So the book, as we get into it and hopefully discover in the, in the weeks to come as I get to preach uh, from this book, the book breaks down really into two big sections. Chapter 1 and 2 gives us a big picture of what's happening in our relationship to God through the lens of an actual marriage between a man named Hosea and a woman named Gomer. Hosea is God's prophet to Israel at a time just before the northern part of the nation of Israel will cease to be a kingdom. Gomer is a prostitute. Before and after God tells Hosea to marry her. 
Hosea, as the husband, is meant to be a symbol showing us God. And Gomer's unfaithfulness is a picture of Israel's sin against God. These chapters will also show us what God intends to do with his unfaithful bride. Chapters 3 to 14, the second big section, will take the big themes of the first two chapters and go through them in more detail. So Lord willing, in the coming weeks, we'll do that. We'll look at chapters 3 through 14. But this morning, we're going to be in chapters 1 and 2. Now, before we begin, let me make sure that we've all located ourselves in this drama. Even though this book and the life of Hosea happened hundreds of years ago, they are still as relevant to us as they were the days that Hosea spoke them and God spoke through him. God remains the faithful God. He made us all to live in a covenant relationship with him, founded on his faithful lead and our faithful following. All of us, without God doing something, are accurately depicted in this book like Gomer. Unfaithful people who refused God's good love and went chasing after things that weren't God and weren't good for us. In each of our lives, we either are or have or will walk through the, spurning, the consequences of spurning the relationship with God for our own way. We are here. So the real pressing question of Hosea is, what will a faithful yet scorned God do with unfaithful people like us? Let's find the answer that God has left for us in the pages of this surprising book. To do that, we're going to follow three different stages of our relationship to God as God sees it. Meaning from God's perspective. Those stages are kind of be the outline of the sermon this morning. So here they are. First, we'll see God's broken marriage. Second, God's painful divorce. And third, God's new proposal. Now, one note. I recognize that most, if not all of us, have first or second hand experience with divorce. The picture God is painting through Hosea and, and Gomer's marriage is unique. We have to keep remembering that throughout. That God is using here a human marriage to portray him and his people, not... To communicate how and why divorce happens between human beings. I say this because so often when human marriages end, both parties often can see how their own faults contributed. In describing Hosea and Gomer's marriage, we will only be seeing Gomer's infidelity. That in no way is meant to be taken to mean that I think or God thinks that any marriage ends, that if any marriage ends, it's the woman's fault. That's not what this is communicating. 
The symbol of the broken marriage here is pointing us to God. And we need to keep looking from Hosea and Gomer to God and his people. That's what this marriage is for. So let's look now at the state of the relationship as we find it as the book opens. God's broken marriage. Follow along as I read the first three verses of chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and then the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Israel has had a string of bad kings up to this point in their history. And they were bad kings because they did not help the people keep their love for God the main priority of their nation. Instead, they allowed the people to bring in religions that focused on looking to the gods worshipped by other countries around them. Jeroboam, mentioned here, was one such king. And there won't be many more kings for the northern part of Israel before they are taken away by the military superpower, Assyria. And God was telling them, through Hosea's marriage and children born to Gomer who aren't Hosea's, that because Israel already left the marriage, they should expect consequences will follow. So let's read verse 4 through 9. And the Lord said to Hosea, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the, the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name, No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Look at the consequences. With God out of the picture, they will not be protected and the kingdom will fall. God will not overlook Israel's continued betrayal and will not forgive them this time. God will take his special names away from them. They will no longer be my people. They will be disowned, not my people. I wonder how you describe your relationship with God right now. If you could pick a type of relationship to represent your relationship with God, what would you pick? A friend? A father? A distant acquaintance you, you used to talk to a lot, but now you're not sure what's going on with him. Are you so committed to living with God, serving him, sacrificing for his good, living in unity with him, that you'd be comfortable saying the best image to use to describe your relationship with God is marriage? And how would you describe your relationship to God's people in the church right now? Remember, in this marriage picture, God is describing how he relates to his people as a whole. 
which, as we'll see, takes on new significance after Jesus, with his new covenant people, establishes the church. If you're outside the church, you're not in the marriage picture. God's covenant commitment is to those who assemble together and Christ is held as their common head. This marriage picture really ups the ante, doesn't it, on the seriousness with which God takes his relationship to us. And the seriousness with which he views our unfaithfulness. Put yourself in God's Shoes, his side of this marriage relationship. God never had to create us. He never had to share himself with anyone. But in a plan to let created things enjoy the goodness of who he is, he made us. He said, there's, there's nothing really you've done to deserve this, but I'm going to give you the world just because I'm choosing to love you. Adam and Eve got to live in that relationship for a bit, but then their eyes started to wander, didn't they? Just like ours do. And their minds wandered, as ours do. I wonder what it would be like to have all the benefits, but none of the commitment. Just as an aside, I think, This is the absolute definition of our culture's approach to sex and romance and most everything else. (laughs) Trying to get the benefits of God's good creation without any commitment to the God who gave them to us. So we turn from the one who literally made us for the best possible existence you can know and offered it to us. And we go for the worst instead. Life without God. Now, if you're a human being, you inherited your infidelity from your parents and their parents and their parents and their parents and their parents all the way to our first parents, Adam and Eve, just like Jezreel, no mercy and not my people. We are born cheating on God. And if God were a sinner like us, we might find a loophole to rationalize our infidelity is somehow justified because he's like us. And surely he must have been at fault too. But God is a perfect husband. One who perfectly loves. And he's God. And if we don't instantly understand that you just don't go back on your word with the supreme deity of all time. Then we've not yet grasped the gravity of our unfaithfulness to God. God puts this marriage drama between Hosea and Gomer into action so that we will be appalled by our sin. What we've been, what we've done, how we've treated God. He doesn't need, he doesn't want pity as a jilted husband. He's simply reminding us that he deserves our fidelity and our love because he's God. Isn't it amazing that God would ever offer such a relationship with himself to us? And despite this very bleak beginning, friends, that's actually what God is communicating in this book. 
Yes, we broke the marriage. And yes, God is right to leave us forever. But yes, God really did plan, even through our infidelity, that he would make us to be new people. And he would marry us for a forever marriage of faithfulness to us. And in return, he would make us to be faithful to him. So the marriage is broken. And no amount of persuasion or argument is going to lead Gomer or Israel to change her cheating ways. God's broken marriage leads to the second phase of the relationship then. God's painful divorce. Read with me, starting in chapter 2, verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead. For she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked, and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I'll have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. And she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than, 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 than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with a ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord." So Hosea tells his children to confront their mother in verse 2. The word plead there is like a legal word. Like a lawyer contending with a witness to get them to acknowledge their guilt. Hosea is done with this marriage. And he pronounces it over. She is not my wife and I am not her husband. You still feel and sense that there's a glimmer of a possibility that he would take her back even now if she would just stop her unfaithfulness. But she doesn't. Hosea's divorce of Gomer represents God ending his covenant with Israel. He even says in Jeremiah 3.8, he divorces the nation. And he ends it. Because Israel long ago stopped upholding their side of the relationship. All this repeated language about adultery. This is how God viewed Israel's decision to worship the pagan deities of neighboring countries. Specifically Baal. Supposedly, Baal was a storm god. 
who brought uh, fertility and rain, a God who would bring plant and human life through rain and pregnancy. So the agrarian community of Israel made all kinds of sites across their country for the worship of Baal. Of course, these pagan deities were nothing more than images men made out of wood, carved it with their own hands. Only Israel's God actually was alive and had power to create and bring life. And when the true and living God decided to set up a special relationship with little powerless Israel, his vow to them was faithfulness. And their vow to him was fidelity in return. Exodus chapter 20, what we call the Ten Commandments, spells out what they were agreeing to in their relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Israel had broken her side of the covenant. And she'd walking out on, walked out on their marriage with God. It's clear then that idolatry is how Israel was unfaithful to God. But why did they do it? Why do we sin? What's at the heart of any sinful action we engage in? Look back at verse 13. Look at the bottom. She went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. We sin because we love something more than God, which leads us to forget God. Now, the opposite of this kind of idolatry is what we call faithfulness. Faithfulness happens when we love God more than everything and remember him in everything. Idolatry, faithfulness. If the God of heaven and earth, eternal in existence, merciful and loving in his being, totally faithful to his word, has been so good to us, What could there possibly be in our lives that would deter, distract, and derail us from being grateful and loving to him? What could possibly lead us to forget God? Get ready for the ironic answer. The things God made and gave us for life. We forget God because we start thinking of those things as God's. We love the things. We do whatever it takes to get the things. And the things get so consuming that we totally forget that it was God who gave them. Look again at verse 6 and verse 8. I don't know why I put verse 6. 
verse 8. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil. And who lavished on her silver and gold. What Gomer really was going after, as spelled out a little earlier in verse chapter 2, was the things that made for a comfortable life. Food, clothes, land, wine. And so she keeps leaving her bed with Hosea and sleeping with other men to get paid in things. But the tragedy is that she gets nothing from these exploits. The only reason she has anything is verse 8. It's because her faithful husband, Hosea, keeps providing for her. Friends, is there a thing in your life right now that God made that you love so much, the pursuit of it is causing you to forget God? How would we know? Well, typically when we take something God has made as a gift for us to increase our love for him, and instead we forget God, we will inevitably end up misusing the thing. And so it becomes distorted. And in that distortion, it becomes destructive. Work overtakes rest. Physical desire becomes addiction. Dreams and hopes become crippling infatuations. And as we get lost in the hunt for the next thing, we forget that it is God who feeds us daily. God who clothes us daily. God who provides what we need daily. And that he is always aware of us. And that he is always sustaining us. And he is always leading and protecting us. He's helping us. And he's loving us always. And he gives a good life to us. When we enjoy the good gifts in his good way. How many times have we forgotten him? Yet how many times can you count when he has forgotten you? Not a one. I never went to any of my high school reunions. I doubt that I ever will. Nothing against my high school or my classmates in case they ever listen to this. I just haven't seen many of these folks for over 20 years. And I'm sure that if I were in a room with all of them, many of them, I might recall their faces, but I'm sure I would blank on their names. I just don't think of them enough to keep kind of a present picture of them in my head or certainly in present part of my life. I find I can do that with God, too. If I'm not actively seeking to know him, to serve him, to hear him, to talk to him, to process my daily life with him, I forget him. And the more I forget, the more distorted my life becomes. I lose discernment. I lose wisdom in thinking through things. My service turns into selfishness. My joy turns to anxiety. His pure love is seen in me, starts to vanish, and out comes envy and jealousy and anger and hate. 
So what action could I take or could we take every day this week that will help us remember God in the morning, in the middle of the day, and in the evening, in blessing and in trial, in temptation and in peace? I think we can go where he's found. We can go to hear his voice speaking to us in his word. Let me invite you as a woman to to come upon Mark's invitation and come at five o'clock today to learn how to study his word with others. And if you feel so lost and you're not sure you'd even know how to listen if you came to his word and you need help hearing his word so you can remember God, who will you ask to help you right after this service is done? Pick somebody now and follow through and go to them and say, I've forgotten God or I just want to keep remembering him. Can we do that together? Gomer leaves Hosea and only comes back when the payments dry up. Verse 7. Ultimately, she finds kind of like a prodigal son experience that no other lover remains. After a while, the people she used to easily find have disappeared. They used her and discarded her. You cannot love things more than God. And live. So, what does God do with unfaithful Israel? Well, as we'll see at the end, the grand picture is that He's leading her to a total restoration and making her into a new people. But how does God now lead her on that path? He divorces her. And lets her life descend into complete destitution. He takes everything away. Verse 9. Until in the end, everything she's loved is gone. So the mention of her nakedness is not meant to be attractive. It's the kind of thing you would see and turn away from. Life outside of God, lived by our own rules, guided by our own cravings. This is what comes of that life. And you know why? Because you won't find God in anything but God. And if you can't find God in something, you can't find eternal life there either. And if we can't find life, we die. And do you know who loves you and me enough to lead us to discover that truth, even if it means taking everything away we think we need? God. How many Christians in this room right now could tell the story that it was at the end of themselves? Or near the end of their life. Or the ending of their career and ambition. Is that's the time they finally realized that God was their strength and their song and their eternal portion. That it is God alone who can satisfy the soul with good things. And it is in life with God that we find pleasure forevermore. If sin is more important to you than God, God will give you over to your sin. 
My dad tells the story of his dad finding him smoking cigars when he was 13 at the local pool hall. My grandfather took my dad home, got two lawn chairs and a box of cigars, and told my dad to start smoking. Dad finished one, and grandpa gave him another. And he didn't make it through number two before he got very sick. Perhaps that was the only way my dad's stubborn rebellion could break. To understand the wisdom my grandpa knew. There are things you might enjoy now that if indulged will hurt you. When God lets us pursue sin and we suffer consequences because of it. It's not because God is a hack father. Who is just trying to figure out how to parent his children and bumbling along the way. It isn't because he's a vindictive father who can't tolerate the thought that anyone would not obey him all the time. Goodness knows. He's been so patient with me in so much of my disobedience. It's because he knows us. And he knows that this is the way to wake us up from our deadly sleep. This is the kind of thick-headed we are. That we don't trust God's wisdom firsthand. But we have to find out for ourselves that a diet of sin leaves us deathly sick. So I think in a, in a kind of precursor, foreshadowing kind of way, chapter 2 also illustrates what church discipline is meant to achieve. When we cling to our unrepentant sin, we walk out from our covenant with God and with his children and other Christians. And the church, after warning us and appealing to us to let go of our sin, is told to let us go. So that our flesh will be destroyed and our souls might be saved. 1 Corinthians 5. This is the process God intends to use to bring us to an end of ourselves. And God willing that it will create in us a a desire to repent. And when the sinner returns in repentance, then the church demonstrates the faithful love of God by restoring the person back into the covenant family. 2 Corinthians 2. God's discipline aims to bring repentance and restoration. So friends, if we're sick from sin, if we're destitute, we must see that we are at fault. God may deliver us to it, but he gives us what we want. And that's really sad. Sad to think that we would want something so much we'd be okay if we lost God in exchange for it. But praise God. Not even our deeply held desire for what will kill us keeps God from saving us. The path we travel from unfaithful to destitute ends there if it's up to us. But God has more than that. For us. So we come to the third stage of the relationship God's new proposal. Look with me at verse 14. Therefore, or you could read it, even so, or nevertheless, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her and there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth as at the time when she came up out of the land of Egypt 
And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on the day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Someone very close to me, his marriage ended due to his spouse's repeated infidelity. Yet he's stuck in there. Wanting so much to make it work. And as I stood and watched, I struggled to understand why. But for all his efforts, the marriage ended anyway because nothing could make his spouse want to be faithful. In this last section, God returns to Israel. Not to restore the previous marriage, but to begin a new marriage. Not a reinstating of the old covenant, but an entirely new arrangement. Who of us? Look at verse, just the gap between 13 and 14 and what's there. You see the end of 13? She went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. And then the resolve of God. Therefore, I will allure her. I will go after her. I will pursue her in love and I will marry her. Who of us can describe And explain the infinitely incomprehensible love that exists in that gap between verse 13 and verse 14. What would compel God to make such a decision? God looks at us, naked, destitute, wallowing in the muck and mire of our sin, and knows this is what we chose over full and abundant life with him. And he decides that he's not going to leave us, but he's going to love us. He's going to pull us away from it. He's going to free us from the distraction of it. And then he's going to put new life in us. Isn't this unthinkable to us? After all we've done, after what we've become, why in the world would God start again with us as he has church? It's because he knows. He knows that he is the only way we will ever become his faithful bride. If there's ever going to be a relationship between him and us as the people he made, God is going to have to make an entirely new covenant in which it all comes on him and depends on him. 
The responsibility is on his shoulders to be the faithful one, the merciful one, the righteous one, and the just one. This is the marriage between God and man that Jesus came to earth to make. In his perfect life, he fulfilled the vow of righteousness. In his death, he received the unfaithful bride's judgment. He hung on the cross in our nakedness. He died in our destitution. And by shedding his blood, he gives us pardon for all our infidelity. Mercy flows from the cross to forgive sinners and create the church of his saints. Because his death payment and his resurrection power, we are church, Christ's new and faithful bride. Praise God. We didn't love God or know him until God came in his spirit and showed us Christ crucified, buried, and raised for sinners. And because he helped us see him, we were given new hearts to believe from him and turn from the sin that carried us away. And now in his eyes, we are entirely new. A new bride with real Christ reflecting beauty. Not the cheap and fading beauty which we used to dress ourselves up in. New hearts with new desires to love God and to follow him. Not the old cravings of self. A new love that looks at God and runs not away from him, but to him. And despite knowing, as we do, all that we once were and all that we once did against him, we now gather regularly to exclaim by the mercy of Jesus Christ and the unfailing love of the Father and the heart-changing work of the Holy Spirit, God, you are our God, and we will love you and we will praise you forever. Look at the text. Look at the text. What makes infidelity and idolatry in our hearts turn into faithfulness and sincere love for God? Is it your work? Is it anything I can do? No. It's the power of the character and work of God. Verse 17, God says, I will remove idols from your heart and mouth. Verse 18, God says, I will choose to commit myself to you in language that resembles the creation covenant and the covenant God made with Noah after the flood. This is significant. God in Jesus starts a totally new creation that will one day be completed in a new heaven and a new earth. But he's begun the new creation in your heart right now, Christian. God says in verse 18 that the protection and the peace we once sought from things that couldn't deliver, he will be that protection and peace. He will be our refuge and our perfect peace now. He will take us through danger. He will take us through hardship. He will take us through trial and persecution. And he will bring us into the delight of his presence with us. And because it's his character that this covenant rests on, his love, his mercy, this covenant will never be broken. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. 
believer in Jesus, if you struggle to know the security that God brings through your faith in Christ, through his work in you by the Spirit, listen to this. The power that holds you secure to the Father, Son, and Spirit today and forever is entirely God's power. The commitment that never wavers is God's commitment. The people God calls his church, his new bride, we carry that name because God decided to take us from not his people and call us, you are my people. Now to experience this kind of relationship in which God holds you secure and you know that you are his forever and will live with him eternally because of what Christ has done on the cross to forgive you of your sins, this is what it means to know the Lord. Let me invite you, if you don't know him, to stay and talk to somebody after here who does, who can help you go to Jesus so that you can know him today. What a reversal the faithful love of God brings in this passage. I don't know if you know it, but, but all that, that Gomer re, re, misused gets somehow redeemed and restored. You could go back and look at that in more depth today. But all that we misused, all that he took away in discipline, everything eventually restored it in the right place. So, so church, let's seek to look at the things we have or don't have that we would like to have. Let's, let's seek to look at them underneath the canopy of God's faithful love. Whether he gives them or he doesn't, we're still enveloped in the constant care of our Lord, who is the lover of our hearts. So find opportunities to express your gratitude for God through the things he provides. This is something I've been learning about myself this week and knowing I need to grow in. So tell a brother or sister how God is growing you through their example. Taste a good meal and verbalize your joy in God who made food taste so good. Delight in your spouse or your child or your friend and see how perfectly loving God was to give that specific person to you. Enjoy participating in what God feels in his generous love to us by you spending money to bless another person. Even by giving money to take the gospel of his love to others through the ministries and missions of this church. Believer, since God is where you make your home, then get the joy of using your house as a place where others can experience God's love for them through you and your hospitality. So those are the stages of the relationship of Hosea 1 and 2. This is the beginning of the book. And Lord willing, we'll see even more in our study in coming weeks. What a powerful picture God uses. A cheating wife, illegitimate children, and a faithful husband who lets the marriage end so that he can start a new and better one with the same people who walked out on the first. 
Though we have been unfaithful, God remains faithful. We were not his people. Now we are his people. And he is our God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So, Father, through the Son, by virtue of the Holy Spirit working in us, we wonder and adore you, our faithful God. We thank you for the mercy shown to people who did not deserve mercy. We praise you for faithfulness that came in the midst of our infidelity. And we praise you, Jesus Christ, who came as the husband to redeem a bride, clothe her in your righteousness, forgive her by your blood, and restore her through the power of your resurrection life so that we might now be called God's people. We only ask, as we adore you, we ask for greater faithfulness. For greater love of you that helps us to to hasten more, to love others more than ourselves, to say no to cravings that would lead us to distraction and destruction. We ask for greater knowledge of you and your love for us in Jesus that would promote in us a love to love you and obey you and follow you and to know you through your word. Cause us to be a people who are faithful to you and who proclaim that you are our faithful God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our only hope, our Savior, and our King. Amen.